You are listening to the Advent teaching series from Jubilee Church. This series seeks to address the empty promises of religion and express the life that Jesus offers as we celebrate his birth. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Raise your hand if you've been around looking at Christmas lights yet. Come on. We've got some good lights going on in South City here. If you guys haven't done it, you need to get after it. There is uh, something over at the Fr- uh, Francis Park. There's uh, Snowflake Alley. There's Angel Avenue. And there is, uh, there's one big one that I forget the name of, but Candy Cane Lane. There it is. These guys have been doing it. If you haven't done it, get out there and do it, especially if you have kids. It is a fun time. I remember as a kid, we uh, were constantly going to do that. We had this park where I grew up where, uh, you know, they hung lights and you kind of drove through and it took an hour. And for the parents, it was like, come on, let's go. And for the kids, it was like, yay, let's go again, let's go again. And you got these uh, really nasty candies at the end of it, white package, red writing. I don't remember what they're called, but uh, not good. I didn't like them at least. My sister ate about 100 of them. Um, <laughs> But, you know, one of the things in Christmas time that you see, like these signs all over the place, and I snarl it, I snarl it, I saw it at, I snarl it, uh, snarl it all the time. I saw it at, uh, on Candy Cane Lane, thank you for reminding me of the name of that, uh, is you see these signs on people's houses like joy. So you've got these, uh, these, these things in the front yard, which if you, again, if you haven't been over to Francis Park, there's this yard with literally inflatables filling the entire yard. Like I've never seen anything like this in my life. I think they must have like, owned this house for 60 years, and every year they bought like 10 inflatables or something. I mean, it's just, I've never seen anything like it. It's a little cluttered, in my opinion, but, uh, you know, whatever, to each his own. And, but I see these signs in people's yards, things like peace and joy and love, and uh, probably the two main ones are peace and joy, peace and joy, peace and joy. And even I saw this, it was really cool, a south a house the South, a, a house over in Southampton that had a wreath coming down the chimney in big letters, P-E-A-C-E, peace, down the chimney and wreath. And I thought, man, that's pretty cool. It's impressive. I mean, it took me like four hours to hang like a few icicle lights and a little bush. And, uh, you know, I see these people with their houses decked out. And I'm just like, geez, am I that big of a failure in life? Like I can't, like I can't get my icicle lights to actually hang. Like they bend and they crumple. And anyway, but peace and joy, peace and joy are the main things that, that I tend to see during Christmas time. What I don't tend to see is hope. I mean, you see it here and there, it's scattered about a little bit, but you, you don't see it nearly as much as those other things. And yet, I, I would say that the scriptures point more to hope than they do to peace and joy. That Yes, Jesus Christ came bringing peace and preaching the gospel of peace, that you can have your sins forgiven and be, have, it, have peace with God again. And yes, he came bringing joy. I mean, we, we, we lit the pink candle today. We're celebrating joy in the Advent season that Jesus came bringing joy. But yet, the, the, the Christian faith, I would say, is more identified by hope than by any of these things. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, the, the whole idea of being a Christian is that you're someone who has your hope in God. Someone who's not a Christian is someone who doesn't have their hope in God. And hope is something that you and I need. It's something that, that, that we need to uh, have in our lives. It's something that we need to carry. It's something that we need to go with us. Otherwise, we are going to be a very down and depressed people in our lives. And I'm not talking about hope like, uh, like I tend to hope. Like, man, I hope I'm not going to be 
late to work today because it's like, yeah, you're going to be late to work today. Like, that's not a real hope. That's like just a reality that's not going to happen. Or it's not like this wishful thinking, you know, like every January I get this wishful thinking that comes in my head that I'm just like, you know what, I think this year I'm going to like lose 30 pounds, read 50 books and like become a better me. Like, I'm going to be the best husband and the best man and like I'm going to have a six pack at next December and like Christmas isn't going to catch up with me next year. And you know, I have the, it's like, that's wishful thinking. It's not reality. Like, you know, this New Year's resolution I make with myself every year, it's like, it's, it's, there's a little bit of hope. Like, it could possibly happen, but it's not reality. It's not something that I can stand upon and say, I know that 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 I'm actually going to lose that 30 pounds this year, right? Like, it's, it, you're like, no, it's not right. I am going to lose my 30 pounds this year. But we don't. It's wishful thinking. It's, it's hopeful thinking. It's, it's thinking that's, that's got some hope in it, but it's not filled with hope. See what I'm saying? It's not the same. And Christian hope is much more than just wishful thinking. And you and I, we need more than that. If we're honest with ourselves, we need more than just wishful thinking, right? Like, like we need to know that we know that we know that we know that we know that God is good and we can trust him. And we need to know, we need to know that he is working all things for good in our lives. We need to know that if we're going to put our trust in Christ, if we're going to entrust our, our souls and our entire lives and our eternities unto him, we need to know that he is good and that he's real and that he's true. We need to have hope that we can stand on. You, you see what I'm saying? Like, are you hearing me with this? Like, are you hearing me that if, if we as Christians are really going to have a hope in this life, it has to be more than wishful thinking. And we hope for things all the time, right? Like, we hope, like, I hope my kids will turn out okay. I hope my marriage will last. Like, I, I hope it's going to make it. I hope that the bills don't stack up upon me so high that one day I just crumble under it. I mean, my mom, when I was growing up, she oftentimes worked two, sometimes three jobs. And we'd ask her, Mom, why are you so busy? Like, why are you working all the time? She'd be like, look, guys, it's this or it's on the streets. What do you want? She was hoping that she would make it. Week in, week out, month in, month out, but we need more than that. And there's, there's, there's hope like that that we need. And God comes and he gives us hope in those things. But there's a greater hope as well in this life. And for the Christian hope, it's central to faith in God. Faith and hope are almost synonymous. In his uh, letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, he sums up the, the entire Christian life with these three words. These three words, he says, this is the Christian life. Faith, hope, love. Now he says love is the greatest of these these three words, faith, hope, love, that sums up the entire Christian life. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul relates the person who is without hope as the person. So he says, he, Paul says that the Christian life is summed up in these three things, faith, hope, love. So hope is central to the Christian life. When you don't have hope, this is how he describes you. You're separated from Christ. You're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, i.e. you're alienated from the, the community and the blessings of God when you don't have hope. And you're strangers to the covenants of promise. You're strangers to every promise that is in God, every promise that is in Jesus Christ. People without hope, they don't have those promises. People who do have promises like that, they have hope. What you and I are currently hoping in and hoping for in our lives, so whatever our hope is placed in, whatever we're, whatever we're entrusting ourselves to, and whatever we're hoping for in life, that defines us. Do you know that? Do you know that whatever you're hoping for, whether it's a promotion, whether it's uh, another kid, whether it's uh, a marriage, whether it's a relationship, whether it's more money in the bank, whether it's just that you'll make it one more day, whatever you're hoping in, whatever you're hoping in to provide those things for you, and whatever you're hoping for in your life, that's what defines you. 
And so it will define the way that you feel about yourself. It will define the way that you carry yourself in this life. It will define the way that you interact at work. Whatever you're hoping in, whatever you're hoping for, it will define your life. It defines my life. It absolutely defines my life. When I wake up in the morning and I'm hoping that my wife will just serve me and do everything I want her to do, that defines the way our relationship works. Or when I wake up and I'm hoping that we could get a little more money, that we could do that thing, that we could go on that vacation, it defines what my heart is set on. It defines what I'm thinking about. It defines how I feel. And if the thing that I'm hoping in is trustworthy and faithful and can, and can carry me through, then my hope isn't rocked. But if the thing that I'm hoping in, like myself or someone else, or some situation, if I'm hoping in that and that's where my hope is placed, then I go up and down when that thing goes up and down. Makes sense? The, Tim Keller said it like this. He said, he's a pastor in New York City and an author of like a bajillion books. He says this about hope. You and I are unavoidably and irreducibly hope-based creatures. How we live now is linked to what we think will happen later. Christian hope has more to do with the ultimate future, not the immediate. He says, you and I, we're, we're unavoidably, he's using words that are way out of my vocabulary, big, unavoidably, irreducibly hope-based creatures. We can't escape this. We, we can't get out from under this. We can't be reduced to more than this. That at, at our core of our being, we are a people of hope. Whether you, you this morning would say, yes, I am a Christian, or you this morning would say, no, I'm not a Christian, you are a person of hope. And it's just a matter of what you have your hope in. And the Apostle Peter, in writing this letter to the churches that he oversees, which consist of churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, all of which are being persecuted for their faith, all of which are being uh, uh, beaten, flogged, have to leave their homes, have to leave their cities, all of which have to hide this faith that they have in God, all of which could be afraid at any moment that they might lose their life because of this hope that they have in God. Peter writes to them as the one who's overseeing these churches, and he writes to them about this hope that they have. Because he knows that in the, in the midst of a life like this, in the midst of all of the trials, all of the tribulations, he knows there's a potential that they could lose their hope in God. He knows that there's a potential that they could just get so beaten down by it and the burden could become so heavy that they stop hoping. And he writes to them. And this is how he kicks off. I'm going to kick off in verse 3. He does some introductory things in verse 1 and 2. But verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he starts this whole thing off with gratitude. And gratitude is the first step of hope. The first step of a hope in God, of a hope that is lasting and secure. The first step of this church making it as being a people of hope in God. The very first step is that they don't just become grunt, disgruntled and angry and grumbling about all the things that God isn't doing, but that they remain a people of gratitude. And so he starts off and he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He starts off by recounting to the church, God has blessed you and he is a blessed God. He kicks it off just like Jesus kicks off uh, the Lord's Prayer, exalting and lifting up the name of God. And if you don't do that, if you don't have gratitude in your heart, if you're not grateful to God in your life, then it'll happen to us what happens to the church in Rome, in Romans 1, Paul says that they, they stopped thinking God and they left God. They stopped thinking Him and because of that they stopped seeing Him and they stopped loving Him and they stopped hoping in Him 
and they walked away from him. The beginning of a rebellious heart is we stop being grateful to God. We stop realizing who we are and who he is. We stop realizing that he's the Lord on high who gives every good and perfect gift. And we don't deserve anything. We can't have hope if we don't realize this. But then he goes on to say, according to his great mercy, so blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He starts with blessing and thanking God, and then he moves on, and he says, hey, church, I just want you to know that this hope that you have, that this life that you have in Christ, it is grounded on the mercy of God. It's not grounded on your performance. So it's not, it's not grounded on your faithfulness, your devotion to God. This, this hope that you have in God, when you wake up in the morning and you don't read your Bible and you don't pray and you don't meet your expectation or what you think is God's expectation of your life, your hope doesn't go away. You know what I'm saying? Like when you wake up and you're just like, oh, I just don't feel like a Christian today. You don't have to get in that cycle of beating yourself up and just going down that path. Why? Because your hope isn't founded on you. You're not standing on yourself for your own performance. You're also not standing on your own fruitfulness. God doesn't love you because you're useful. You know, your boss and, and people in your life, we tend to love each other based on performance. We tend to love each other based on what do I get out of this? So if I perform really well, then I'm accepted. If I don't perform well, I'm not accepted. We get hired based on our performance. We get fired based on our performance. We feel that in relationships. If I'm a certain type of person to them, they're going to love me and accept me. If I'm not, they're going to reject me. It's usually true. And he starts this thing by saying, this, we're going to build a house here of hope. We're going to build a house of hoping in God. The foundation has to be his mercy. By grace through faith, you have this salvation. Not by means of anything you've done. We can't boast. It's not based on us. No. We can only boast in him, what he's done for us. You see what Peter's doing here? He's lifting up. He's starting off by saying, okay, before we ever get into the rest of it, let's just lift up God. Let's just lift up who he is in this place. Let's just lift our voices and say, oh, God. Blessed are you. Merciful are you. And then he gets into how the whole thing works. He says you must be born again into this living hope. He says there's this living hope for you stored up in heaven. The way you get this living hope is that you be born again. Now you may be new to church. You may be thinking to yourself like, what does that mean? What does it mean to be born again? You can see it in the newspaper sometimes like, an actor kind of is on the decline or an athlete is kind of on the decline and, and the, the writers will say, they've been born again. They've started afresh. They, their, their career is on the rise again. Is that what he's talking about here? It's kind of but not really what he's talking about here. P Peter's using this language, born again, out of this conversation that Jesus has with this man named, named Nicodemus in John 3. And I just want to take you there and walk through a few of the things that Jesus uh, says in this relationship. Uh, Nicodemus who is a ruler of the Jews and a member of the Pharisees, which, uh, just side note, the Pharisees are the ones who continually coming after Jesus, trying to get him killed, trying to get him out, trying to make him shut up because uh, they had religious power and control. Nicodemus is a member of this, this crew, and, and, and he comes to Jesus at night. You know, he's trying to be a little sneaky. He's like, okay, I'm with these dudes who don't like this dude, but uh, I, I see something in this dude that, that I, I want in my life, and I want to kind of connect to and figure out a little more. And so he comes to Jesus at night. 
And he says this to him. He says, oh shoot, I didn't actually write down what he says to him. John 3, open it up. But he comes to him and he, he's like, Jesus, I know that you're from God. And, and, I, and I know, because I see the signs that you do and I see the things that you're doing. And so he comes to Jesus and he's like, I know that you're from God. And I kind of, and Jesus can perceive, he can see in the Nicodemus' heart, his heart is soft. And he's, he's wanting some more. And he's kind of longing for Jesus. And Jesus responds to him, I did write this down, like this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Speaking to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus. I know that you're from God. I see the things that you're doing. Jesus responds, hey, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, confused, said to Jesus, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Don't you love that? Don't you love the Bible? Like, Nicodemus is like, you know, he's a, he's a ruler of the Jews, he's a Pharisee, and he just can't get this little simple concept. Like, Jesus is like, Nicodemus, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born. Like, you can't enter this earth unless you're born, right? Nicodemus is like, what do you mean, Jesus? Like, do I need to go back and be born again from my mom? And Jesus is like, no, 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 <laughs> that's not what I'm talking about, Nicodemus. Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Of God, So the people of God are a people of hope. They, they get to this hope by being born again. Nicodemus asked, what does being born again mean? Jesus says, you have to be born of the water and of the Spirit. So it's simple. You have to be born a natural man to enter into the earth. You have to be born a spiritual man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You tracking with me? Come into earth, be born naturally. Come into heaven, be born spiritually. It's so simple. But it's one of the hardest things you could ever possibly swallow in your life. That's how the gospel comes. It comes simply. But it is a hard thing to hear. It is a hard thing to hear, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we are dead in our sins. It's hard for our flesh to hear that. It's hard to hear, yeah, I'm so messed up that it's not even that I'm bad, I'm dead. I'm so messed up that it's not even that I need a little help to get back on my feet. No, no, no. There's no help for you unless you're made alive again. You don't just need lifted up a bit. You need resurrected. And if you're here this morning and you've never been resurrected in Jesus Christ, you can be today. And he comes to you and he offers you this living hope. He comes to you and he offers you this hope in God that you could be alive in him, that you could be spiritually born anew. And for each and every one of us, we have to ask ourselves the question, have I been born again? Because you could live your entire life thinking that you're a Christian and coming to church and going to groups and serving and doing all the Christian things and opening doors for people and saying nice things and not cussing and not listening to bad music and blah, 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 blah. You could live your whole life doing all those things. And you could never be born again and you could still be dead in your sins. And we have to consider in our hearts, have I been born of God's Spirit? Have I actually been born of his spirit? And if you're wondering, how do I do that? What does it mean to be born again? Well, in this verse, verse 4, Peter says that you're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How am I born again? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died, was buried, and that he rose again. 
And that in rising again, he conquered Satan, sin, and death. He conquered Satan, all the evil forces, all the wickedness in this world. He conquered it on the cross. He conquered sin. He conquered the power of sin in our lives. If you're stuck in habitual sin, you can't seem to get out of something. You just feel stuck. You feel stuck in an attitude. You feel stuck in an action. He conquered that on the cross. And when he raised from the dead, he, gave, he has power over that. And he conquered death. In this life, we will die. Our flesh will waste away. We are all getting one day closer to death. We're one day closer today than we were yesterday. And two days closer than we were Friday. And tomorrow we'll be closer. It's going to happen to all of us. But he conquered that on the cross and had take, took power over it in his resurrection so that for those who hope in him, as the scripture says, they never die. How is it that they never die? Because they've been born again. The flesh may waste away, but the spirit continues on. And then when he comes, we get a new body. And all the old people said, amen. Did I say old people? I meant sages. Those spicy old people. Look, if you don't believe me that this is the message of Jesus Christ in its simplicity, if you think, no, the message of Jesus Christ is just good teaching and good morality and a good dude who lived and died and he, that's all it was. Or if you believe that he's just a prophet, he came, uh, he came understanding the things of God just like all the other prophets, but that was it. If you don't believe me, look at 1 Corinthians 15. Paul, Paul boils it down. He says, this is the gospel which I've preached. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. Gospel just means good news. Which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. That's a lot there, but we're not going to jump into it. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So what, what Paul's about to say is like the summary of the gospel. If you've ever wondered, like, what is it that I need to share with my coworkers so that they can know Jesus? Or if, you've, if you like wake up in the morning and you're like, I want to tell myself the gospel, what do I say? Or if you're here this morning and you're like, how do I become a Christian? Like, what's it all about? Verse 3 and 4 tells us. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So he died and was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There it is, very simple gospel. Christ died for our sins. We were sinful, we needed God. Christ died for our sins. The great exchange, that, 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 that we were sinful and deserved punishment for our sins, that God was, that Jesus is righteous and deserved reward for his righteousness, and he changed the places with us. He took on that cross when he hung on that tree over 2,000 years ago, he took the punishment for our sins, and he gave us the rewards for his righteousness. Now we get treated as though we were righteous as he is. So when we approach God, he treats us as he treats his son, Jesus. And when Jesus hung on that tree, he was forsaken by his father because he was treated as you and I deserve. And that's why the gospel is hard to swallow is because if Jesus was, if, if our sins were so bad that Jesus needed to be crucified on a cross and God needed to turn his face away because it was so gross he couldn't look at it and he forsook his son, we have to admit that was my sin that put him there. And yet the gospel is so beautiful because Jesus gives us all of his rewards. If you, if you have not been born again, be born again today by placing your hope in the person of Jesus Christ who hung on a cross for your sins, who died and was buried, who rose from the dead, 
forever defeating Satan, sin, and death. I hope that you take that step today. I really hope that you take that step of faith and say, yeah, I'm going to become a Christian today and be born again into this living hope. And the minute that you are, you, you, you receive this living hope. And what that living hope is, is it's an inheritance. And Peter goes on, he says, this inheritance of this living hope is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So the rest of the time, I'm just going to preach about this living hope because it's awesome and cool and I love thinking about it and talking about it. And we as Christians need to have our hearts set on this living hope because this is what Jesus has in store for us. This is what he purchased for us on the cross. This is what he raised for, that we could have this living hope. And Peter says it's an inheritance. You know, when, you're, when a child is born, they get all of the good things and all the bad things they're born into in that family, right? So if they're, if they're born into a poor family, they immediately are a baby that is poor. If they're born into a rich family, they're immediately a baby that is rich. You know, the moment that you're born again, the moment that you become a child of God, you get all of the blessings of God. The moment that you become a child of God, you get all of his blessings. You are, you are, you are birthed into a very rich family. As Ephesians says, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you've ever thought to yourself like, man, I wish I could just be a blessed person. I wish I could just get the blessings of God in my life. That might be why you're here this morning. You might be here this morning because you think, if I go to church, God will be happy with me and he'll do good things. Your, your marriage might be falling apart. Your family might be falling apart. Your job may be going crazy. You may have a sickness, like uh, something really bad, something little. You may have a family member who just passed away, and you're here, and you're thinking, if I can just get with God and get things straight, he'll bless me. Well, let me tell you, you, the blessing of God in your life is not going to come because you do anything. The blessing of God in your life comes because you're hidden in Christ, and he blesses you as he blesses his son. Blessed. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. There's not one spiritual blessing you don't have. If you could think of it, if you could name a spiritual blessing right now and be like, I don't have that one. Yes, you do. The Bible tells you you do if you're in Christ. And he seats us at his table. Ephesians 2, 6. He has seated us with him in heavenly places. So not only do you have everything he has, you've been seated at his table, and you get to eat and drink and enjoy everything that is his. So peace and joy and hope and life, yours. Prosperity and health and forever living, yours. Acceptance, approval, love from your Father in heaven, yours. What else do you want? If it's in Christ, it's in you. You have it. Power over sin. You know, we get caught in this mindset of, I'm just stuck and I can't get out. It's yours. You have power over sin because he's raised from the dead. You don't have to crucify yourself. He crucified you. You get it? It's a great inheritance. And he says this inheritance is imperishable or undestroyable. No fire of hell, no dart of the enemy, no flame can come after this inheritance of yours and take it away. It's imperishable. It's unfading. It's not like that dress you bought last year. It's not like those shoes with the hole in it. It's unfading, imperishable, and undefiled. It's not messed up by this world. You know, in this world, we get gifts, and they're good gifts, but there's always a little twist, like a genie in the bottle, you know? Like, oh, it's amazing, and then there's a catch. Oftentimes, in this life, there's a catch. 
or it's defiled by sin or brokenness, defiled by bad relationships. Another, another way to say this is that it's unsoiled. You know, babies' diapers, they get soiled. This inheritance is unsoiled. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Unfading. It's new every single day. You know how even a good thing, like you get it and it's, oh, it's new. Then a couple days later, you're like, man, it's not. Or definitely a few years later, like your marriage, like even your marriage, like it fades if you don't work on it. If you don't work to make it new every day, it fades. Well, this inheritance is unfading. It's not falling apart. It's only staying strong. And it's kept in heaven for you. It's like the best bank in the world. Kept in heaven for you. Who's going to take something out of God's hand in God's place? No one. This inheritance of yours, it's kept in heaven for you. There's nothing you can do to lose it, except for just leaving Christ altogether. But as long as you're with him, he has your inheritance. As a matter of fact, he has you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's verse 5. God's guarding your inheritance, but even more importantly, He's guarding you. He's guarding us. He's guarding us against the enemy. He's guarding us against the cares of this world. He's guarding us for Himself. You see parents do this all the time, right? Their kids are just running around the house, and the parent's talking to you, but they're not really talking to you. Like they're talking to you, but they're watching their kid. And, and you know, you, you can always pick up on when they're doing it. Because, and please keep doing it. We don't want children who get hurt. Uh, but they're talking to you, and then, you know, Johnny like barely puts his finger on something. Like, eh. It's like, Mom has that third eye in the back of her head. God has that third eye in the back of his head. You moms are like, amen, I got it. I know I got it. And, you, and all of us who have experienced are like, I don't know how she does that. It's a gift from God. God has it. He gave it to her. God keeps us. He keeps us from running out into the street. He keeps us from drinking the Drano. He keeps us from doing all those silly things. You know, it's, we laugh, but we, do, we drink the Drano. We try. We like, oh, this looks good. God's like, what are you doing? But he keeps us from it. Why? Because he loves us. All we have to do is stay with him. The, 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 the time that a child is, is in most danger is when they're away from their parents. But the parents keep them safe. God keeps us safe. Just stay with him. This is a means of great rejoicing. Peter says, and you rejoice in this. He's like telling them that they're doing it. And you're rejoicing in this. Like, okay. You know, part of this is that he's reminding them how they were when they came to Christ. He's reminding them of what they gained in Christ. It's kind of like, you remember that joy of your salvation? Remember when you were rejoicing in this? He says, you're rejoicing in this. You know, rejoicing to me, it doesn't... uh, it doesn't sound like a golf clap when I think of rejoicing. You're rejoicing! No, it's not like that, is it? It's like Cardinals in the World Series, right? Like, you're rejoicing! You know, like that kind of... It's not like, I won five bucks. Like, that's cool, yeah, thanks, that's awesome. It's like, I won the lottery! You know, people like pee their pants and get silly and jump and dance. And they do all the things that they would never do any other time in life. Why? Because they got such a great gift. Something happened that they had hoped for and they would longed for and they would wanted and they got it. 
We have an inheritance in heaven that is undefiled, imperishing, unfading, kept by God. We're kept by God. And Peter says, you're rejoicing about this, right? Like, you're rejoicing about this. That's why here at Jubilee Church, like, you're like, these people are crazy. This is a cult. Like, who rolled in the Kool-Aid? Like, they're raising their hands and clapping and shouting and all happy and everyone's smiling. And they're dancing around and like, what the heck is in this place? We're rejoicing because of this hope stored up for us in heaven. But you know, this life isn't a straight line to glory. Paul goes on, verse 6. By the way, if you're not in this, if you're not in 1 Peter 1 right now, you're probably like, where is he going? He's all over the place. I'm just following the Bible, you know? Like, this is all in the Bible. I don't have any good ideas. Like, I'm not that smart. And even this is hard work for me. I'm like, what's the Bible saying? But it's pretty clear, and you just have to follow along. So 1 Peter 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, and you can just follow along. But this life, you know, we're rejoicing, we're excited, but it's not a straight line to glory. He says, verse 6, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. This reminds me uh, almost identically of uh, 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul describes these various trials as light, momentary afflictions. I read that and I'm like, say what, Paul? You know what I'm going through? Like, Paul, do you understand my life? Light, momentary afflictions, more like heavy, never-ending trials and afflictions and tribulations. Paul, you don't understand. Like, you didn't have a hard life. I have a hard life. Paul's like, really? Shipwrecked, beaten, left for dead? Really? Stoned? Multiple times? Like, light, momentary afflictions. It's all lollipops and unicorns. It's like, what? And I love this about the gospel. I love that that Jesus and, and the writers of the New Testament, they downplay our suffering. It's just light momentary afflictions. They downplay it. Why? Because in light of this eternal weight of glory, in light of this inheritance that we have received, it is a light momentary affliction. It is just a little while. It feels like forever. It feels like this isn't going to go away. My situation is never going to end. My sufferings are never going to end. God, have you just left me for dead? It is just a little while. In light of this great, eternal weight of glory and this eternal inheritance that we have received. And if you're tracking along and you're not in this, like you haven't been in Christ yet, all you've got to do is say, yes, Jesus, take me. Yes, Jesus, be mine, let me be yours, and you're in it. All these promises of God, they're yours. They find their yes if you just come to Jesus. So don't hesitate. Like, just come to him. Like, just take this step. Like, just be like, yeah, I'll get in. And it's, I mean, it's like the best thing in the entire world is offered to you, and all you have to do is, yep. I mean, it is an exchange, like your life for his. I mean, it is a cost. Like, it costs us everything. I mean, I have a financial advisor, and I love him to death, and he's so helpful to me. And uh, I'm so, like, conservative with my money and my, I mean, just every, I'm like, I don't want to, I'm risk adverse, you know. And uh, it's like a little amount of money, and I'm like, 
I don't know. Are you sure it's a good idea? Are you sure? And so I get it. Like, if you're going to put all your eggs in one basket, you want to be sure that you're sure that you're sure that this basket is a good basket to be putting your eggs in, right? And like, that's how it, Christianity, you're putting all your eggs in one basket. You're not just taking a little bit of your life and saying, you can have that, Jesus. You're presenting yourself to God, and you're saying, God, I'm yours. Will you be mine? That's what Christianity is. And by his mercy, he takes us. But it has to be all of us. We can't say, I'll give you this little portion. No, no, it has to be, I'm yours. I'm done trying to do it myself. I'm yours. Where were we? Oh, Jesus downplays our suffering. On the other hand, Jesus totally acknowledges our suffering. They really are distresses. This word, even in verse 6, you've been distressed by various trials. It, it means you've been grieved or you've been sorrowed. So, so mark this well. This isn't double talk when Peter says, In this you are rejoicing, though now for a little while you are grieved. See what Peter's doing? He's saying, In this inheritance that you've received, yes, you are rejoicing. And yes, you are grieved. Yes, you are rejoicing at the eternal inheritance that has been stored up for you and protected by God. Yes, you are. And yes, you really are being grieved. I love this about the gospel. I love that the gospel isn't a presentation of religion that just tells us to hope in some future thing and act like nothing's really happening. And yet I love that it doesn't just keep us where we're at and say, oh yes, you're suffering and yes, that's hard and it's okay, and I'm sorry. It doesn't, I love that it doesn't not give us hope, and it doesn't only give us hope for someday. It does both. It says, yes, there's hope, and you have a hope now. And yes, you really are suffering. That's why we can be with one another in our sufferings. That's why we can weep with one another in our sufferings. That's why when someone's going through something, we don't have to be like, just cheer up and love Jesus. We can be like, man, that's hard. Like, I don't even know what I would do if I was you. And like, I don't understand because I haven't been there. Pause. But don't, don't you know that like Jesus suffered for you? Like he knows your sufferings. He's purchased this great hope and eternal weight of glory for you and this inheritance. Just, I just want to encourage you and pray with you and come along with you and take you there to that place that he's purchased for you. I want to I lead you there in prayer, and I want to lead you there in my speech, and I want to I be that kind of friend that walks with you through these fiery trials, and yet we come to that place of his hope, which is stored up for us. You see how we can be both in this Christian life? In church, we know various trials. I mean, just to name a few that like we've gone through in the last months here. I mean, lung cancer, breast cancer, kidney failure, Crohn's disease, MS, stroke, children who have walked away from Jesus, spouses who have walked away from Jesus, uh, a daughter who's not, who's, a daughter who outlived her mother. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on and on. And like, we know, like we, we, like church, we know fiery trials. Like we know it good, we know it well, and we've experienced it. But Peter doesn't stop there. He, verse 7, so that. He, he has a so that in it. He says, so that in every trial. He wants us to know there's a purpose from God. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, Peter's point here is that even gold, which is perishable, it has to be refined by fire. 
Even gold, which is perishable, needs a refining process. And to God, our faith is more precious than gold. I know to some of us, our faith is not more precious than gold. I know some of us, were like, I could leave the whole faith thing if I could just get rich. But to God, our faith is more precious than gold. He says, even though that perishes, even though that gold is destroyable, your faith is indestroyable. Your faith is imperishable. And because of that, it too needs to be refined by fire. Chapter 4, Peter says the same thing. He says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You know, Peter's saying like, hey guys, don't be shocked that this is happening. Don't, don't be shocked that these trials are coming to you. Don't be, don't be shocked that, that you're enduring such things. He starts off reminding us there's a hope for you and, and, and you're being kept for God and it's being kept for God. But he says, don't be shocked by that. As a matter of fact, rejoice in these things. As a matter of fact, rejoice. And I love the, the, the way that he says this. He says, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now, I don't know about you, but this rejoicing is like, it's even bigger than the previous rejoicing. The previous re- rejoicing was just like, in this you rejoice. This rejoicing, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You see that sometimes when like a girl gets proposed to, she's like so excited that she like can't speak or, or, or things happen in life and it's just like show, so shocking that you're like, you can't even fathom it. You almost get frozen, get locked up. Peter says, rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. And this is at the end of the trials. It's at the end of the trials that he says, even in this, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. With glory, the trials actually help us to rejoice more. The trials, which are, the, they, they test us and they test the genuineness of our faith. They cause and produce in us a greater rejoicing in God. Why? Because through them we see that even in the depths of our pain and even in the depths of our suffering, God is faithful. It's like you go down into the depths of who you are and you find this diamond of what God has placed there. This faith which is imperishable and you're able to draw that up. And before it was this like surface level faith. But these trials have produced in us something that didn't exist before. And so he says rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This inheritance that we have is a gift from God. And it's tested by fire, and it's confirmed by the prophets. I don't have time to get into this real deep, but uh, verses 9 through, uh, t- 9 through 12, Peter says some amazing things about how the prophets predicted this Christ who was to come. I mean, hundreds of years before Christ came, hundreds of prophecies, predictions came about what he was going to be like and what he was going to do. And at the end of that little section about the prophets predicting and speaking about this Christ to come, Peter says this thing, that angels, even angels, long to look into our salvation. And it's, it's amazing to me about this, that angels are longing to look into our salvation because I, I know for myself sometimes I don't long to look into my salvation. Sometimes I'm just going through life and I'm not thinking about it and I'm not enjoying it. 
This so reminds me that if even angels are longing to look into our salvation, they're, they're looking at our salvation, they're saying, I, I can't comprehend the, the, the height and the breadth and the width and the depth. I can't, I can't comprehend how God could love a people like this. I can't, I can't comprehend how God would see this people that are filthy and sinful and have left him time and time and time again. And yet he sends his son to die for them angels are looking at this and they're like, I can't comprehend this. And they're longing to look into it more. And it reminds me, oh, soul, look into my salvation. Look into what Christ has done for me, for this this hope that I have. It's breathtaking. It leaves us in awe and in wonder of God. And so this hope, refined by fire, predicted by the prophets, belongs to any person who's been born again. And Peter ends with this. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I just want to ask you this morning, is your hope set fully on the revelation that will be brought to you at the coming of Jesus Christ? Maybe Maybe you're disheartened. Maybe life's hit you so hard that you're just like, I just don't want to get up again. I don't want to think about hope. I don't want to I don't want to even try and have hope again. Life's just hit me so hard that I can't get up. Peter would say to you, no, no, no. Let, your, let yourself be full, let your hope be fully set on the grace that is to come to you. Let your hope be fully set. Yes, life has beat you down. All the more reason to look up. I want to also ask you, are you distracted? I think this is the one for me. I don't have anything in my life right now that's like beating me down, but I have a lot of distractions that cause me to wander off to other things, even good things. Even good things. And yet, it's secondary. It's secondary to this hope that I have in heaven. Are you distracted this morning? Do you need to set your hope again fully on the grace that is to come to you at the coming of Jesus Christ? This is how Peter says we do it. He says, prepare your minds for actions. I prefer this translation. Gird up the loins of your mind. He says, put on the running shorts of your mind. Get your mind prepped so that you can go for action. For, because in thinking rightly, we do rightly. And so he says, prepare your minds for action. You know, this hope isn't just like a passive hope. I'm waiting, Jesus. I'm waiting. No, no, it's an active hope. It's a hope that's expressed in a life for God. It's a hope that's expressed in financial generosity. It's a hope that's expressed in serving others like crazy. It's a hope that is expressed in pouring out the gospel, in pouring out our lives. Because we have a hope stored up for us in heaven. And so he says, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober-minded about the trials in your life. Don't, Don't misunderstand what God's doing. Don't think that God's pulled his hand from you. Understand that God is drawing close to you through these trials. Be sober minded. Think it through. Understand what God's doing here and fix your hope fully on the grace to come. You know, if we all did this, we would be a rejoicing people who although beaten and distressed and pushed down by life, we are lifted up by him. And although millions of distractions surround us and the people in the world, they look at us and and they go, man, that people's different. We wouldn't be distracted like them and become just like them, but we would have a hope that is different from all these little minor hopes. We would have a hope that is found in God. 
That's we would be this people who, although rejected, are accepted by him. Although beaten up, are lifted up by God. And we would be this people that although we're in a dark generation, we are a light that shines. I just want to encourage us. Let us live every day. Let us like commit ourselves to it. Maybe this is your 2016 resolution, is that you commit yourself to setting your hope on the coming grace that's coming to you. That'd be a good thing to commit yourself to. You know why? Because it's not dependent on you. It's not dependent on anything you can, it's not my weight loss goals. It's this hope that he has for me. That'd be a good thing to commit to. I'm going to set my hope on him.